Hey everyone, what's up? This is Chad and you are listening to Mission Daily. In today's episode, I sit down with Samir Dalakia. Samir is the CEO of Twilio SendGrid. Samir has a wide-ranging, multi-decade career in technology. He started at Stanford and we talk about how he got into Stanford, which at first seemed way, way out of reach. And we talk about an early loss in his life. We talk about leadership lessons, culture, and a lot of really, really tough stuff. But what's fascinating about this episode is Samir is someone who prizes culture above all else. And when it comes to authenticity and vulnerability and being yourself, Samir is it. I interview a lot of CEOs and it's rare that a CEO will be this open, this vulnerable, and is really willing to share as much as Samir did about his personal story to help inform the larger business narrative. Samir was a great guest and you're going to enjoy today's episode. Let's jump into the show. Today's thank you for sponsorship and world-class products and services goes out to Trinet. I'm the founder of a media business and I need all the help and organization I can get. One of the biggest problems I've faced in the past is HR. I say past because I'm not facing it anymore. I educated myself and got the team at Trinet on my side. Trinet and their expert team help us at mission with our payroll, benefits, and compliance. Trinet offers full service HR solutions tailored to your industry. So educate yourself and get the HR help you need. Whether your team is 10 people or a thousand, Trinet has you covered. Check out Trinet for your HR needs today. Well, Samir, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Chad. I'm excited to be joining you and and uh, in your great listenership. Right back at you. So we are in similar quarantine situations. You're down the road in Menlo. I'm here in Palo Alto, but that's not going to stop us from having an awesome conversation to hear about your journey and your story building SendGrid. So first of all, for everybody that doesn't know what SendGrid is or who you are, I would love for you to introduce yourself and tell us about SendGrid. Yeah, uh, terrific. Thank you. I'm, so uh, Twilio SendGrid is a uh, cloud-based uh, email platform that delivers automated and personalized communications to end users. And uh, the, you know, the easiest way to uh, provide examples of this uh, so that people can internalize it or visualize it is like when you go to a website and you click on a button that says, I forgot my password. You know, there's code that sits behind that button to trigger a message that gets delivered in, often into your email inbox. Or if you click on the buy button on, a, on an e-commerce website, there's code that sits behind that button that sends a order confirmation or a receipt. The delivery of email at scale is actually quite complicated. And so there are, there are a lot of companies out there that will uh, effectively embed Twilio SendGrid's API in their code. And we just uh, take care of the email delivery on their behalf. To give you, we've been doing this since uh, the company was founded in 2009. So it's over a decade old now. But to give you a sense of scale, we do this, we provide that service that I just described to over 100,000 paying customers around the world. Uh, We reach, we send an email into uh, the inbox of over uh, 4 billion unique email recipients uh, every quarter. So 
the the scale of the platform is is remarkable. Uh, I'm sure, Chad, we are in your inbox all day, every day. <laughs> you are, and, uh, yeah. Uh, so it's it's um, uh, a terrific platform that provides a really important service. You know, frankly, particularly at times like these, when communications out from uh, companies to their users or consumers is more important than ever. Yeah, and I think you know communication is at the forefront of everyone's mind right now, and that's uh, that's a great thing. And consistent communication and reliable communication, that's that's even better. Samir, you're someone who has been through adversity and you're someone that enjoys talking and discussing it because, you know, you just cited that building SendGrid was a decade-long journey yeah. and decade-long journeys are not the easiest. They're going to be filled with some adversity and dark nights to the soul. So yeah. I would love to get your take on, uh, you know, how do you view adversity and where did that kind of hunger or taste for adversity come from? Yeah, uh, it's a rich topic area. And I would say, you know, first and foremost, I do, I believe that um, adversity is is at the heart of learning and at the heart of finding an inner well of strength and uh, fortitude that I believe every human has. I really do. I don't think there's anything unique or special to to me or other leaders that, that have found it. Uh, I think oftentimes it is because uh, adversity has been thrust upon us, and and you realize and you learn of yourself, of you know, the human spirit that uh, that you can you can soldier through and 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 push through so much more than than one uh, would have thought. And so, when once you have done it once, then you always know that that is there. You know that that reserve, that well, exists for when you need to to push at an exceptional level. And so, in my case, uh, and that was certainly true for us at at SendGrid. I would say to you know all the the tech uh, founders and, and entrepreneurs out there listening, no journey is uh, straight up and to the right. <laughs> and uh, for all the, all the stories out there that, um, you know, all the decade long overnight success stories, uh, you know, none of these things are easy. And, uh, and so please don't, don't lose faith in those, in those dark times there when you hit those moments of adversity and, uh, and, and we always do in every journey you know, you find a way to, to weather through that storm. For me, I think that the source of that experience actually started, had nothing to do with business, happened when I was young. I was uh, a 15-year-old kid when my mom was killed uh, in a burglary. And I uh, uh, found very quickly, uh, you know, it's one of those horrific moments, things you read about in the in the papers or see on the news. And, and uh, in this case, it landed at home and uh, it was a horrific period of time for my family, and, uh, and some of you may remember your teenage years. They're already drama-filled, uh, and you're already in a emotionally uh, sensitized state, and that was one that um, threw me into a, into a tailspin. And you know, I was fortunate. I had um, uh, my older brother, in particular, was uh, an extraordinary uh, influence in my life. And he's four years older than I am and a, uh, a great, a great coach and parent for me. And, and he saw me going off the rails and, and there was no mistaking I was going off the rails. Uh, I was in a very negative place and angry at the world. And, and he gave me the pep talk that ended up changing my life, which was uh, a very simple framing of, well, you know, you can, you can let this moment of adversity, which of course sucks, and there'll be nothing that ever happens to us that will be as bad as this. And forever you can, you know, allow the world can look at this moment and say, oh, that's the moment 
where Samir went off the rails. And uh, it's too bad he had an otherwise bright future. Or you can harness all of that uh, anger and energy and channel it to go and live a life that your mother would be proud of. And my brother's a world-class marketer. He, he likes to, he frames things in a way where there's only one right answer. Uh, and it was clear. Uh, he said, you know, you know which one your mother would want you to choose. And, uh, and from that pep talk forward, I put my head down and have worked harder than I ever believed I possibly could. Thankfully, everything is, uh, has, has certainly uh, worked out reasonably well. I've had my ups and downs uh, since then too, but, um, but I found that uh, weathering through that adversity convinced me that I could get through just about anything. There wasn't any problem or challenge that was going to show up at my doorstep that if I uh, put my shoulder against, I wasn't going to be able to run through. Thank you so much for sharing that story. That's powerful to say the least. And your brother sounds like, you know, someone that came, not only was there for, you know, obviously a reason, but was able to frame that in a genius way. Yeah. Uh, Served in the military and, uh, you know, on two deployments and lost friends, different places and afterwards to things like suicide. And it's always a a challenge, but when you lose a family member or someone close, it's even, it hits harder and it's, you know, horrible, horrible. Um, Samir, when you were receiving that advice from your brother, obviously that's such a pivotal time in your life. You know, you, you saw those two decision trees in a sense, branch out. How did you get started on the one that, you know, led up into the right? And how did you find the strength to keep going? Because that's not, you know, it's still a long journey after that. Yeah, uh, you know, like as they always say, every every journey begins with that first step. And and for me, you know, as a 15 year old kid, I often joke about, uh, you know, the biggest thing, the hardest thing that I could possibly imagine at that stage in my life uh, was getting into and attending Stanford University. That was this like mythical place uh, that I had always dreamed of wanting to go. Uh, I knew that the odds were far stacked against me. I was a a pretty good student, but not certainly not the best in my class. And that first step for me, I can remember it vividly, you know, um, st- standing over my mom's um, coffin and saying, I'm going to get into Stanford University, mom. And from that day forward, for the next year and a half, it, was, um, it happened in the middle of my soft, uh, sophomore summer between my sophomore and junior years in high school. And uh, for those of you who remember high school, you know, it's junior year and your first semester of your senior year when is uh, sort of the, the peak of it all. That's when it gets real. And, and I uh, will often, often say it's uh, a true statement. I have never worked as hard before or since those 18 months, but, uh, but it worked. And I was able to, that level of focus on a goal that I was running at that was uh, not in service of myself, but uh, for her memory I think is in one of the ways in which you find an energy that is deeper than yourself because you're not doing it for yourself. And, and that focus keeps all the, the dark thoughts away. <laughs> you, right. You're just focused on the work and you get the work done. And then I was able to make it up here to, uh, to the Bay Area to, you know, I'm set up in Menlo Park. I could take out my driver and probably hit a ball towards campus and <laughs> get pretty close. And uh, things, you know, could very much change from, from that point forward. I'm curious to know for everyone listening that might be going through something that's uh, challenging right now, or you know, obviously with what's going on on a macro scale, it's psychologically challenging for everyone in different ways. Can you describe a little bit of the 
confidence and new mindset that came after you achieved that goal and after you went outside of your personal suffering to achieve something for someone else? Yeah. And, you know, I hope it is something that, that, um, that we can all lean on in, in this moment. I think it, it will be very easy over the next set of months to turn inward and think about our own challenges. Uh, and, and everyone has their own, the, the way they're dealing with this uh, pandemic is, is hitting people in, in a myriad of ways. But for those um, that can, uh, turning outward and, and whether it's thinking about how you can stay focused to help your family uh, or your loved ones or your community or those most vulnerable, anything that is outside of yourself, I think you will find that it makes coping easier and that it allows you to focus your energies in, in a way that serves the greater good, that's productive. And uh, the introspection, I think, can, you know, when things are thin or things are particularly bad, I think, uh, isn't always as productive as one would like it to be. For sure. And if we fast forward through your time at Stanford, I'm curious to know, when was the next, uh, you know, major goal, major milestone? What type of things were you setting up after you achieved that challenge? And, you know, you've held a different, a wide set of roles in tech in executive roles and as the CEO of places. Um, so I'm curious, what was the journey like to get to those places? Yeah, it's interesting. After, after Stanford, um, I stumbled into, into software. Uh, I graduated and, and I hadn't um, studied computer science, though I wish I had in hindsight. <laughs> but uh, I was more of a business kid. So I, was, I studied economics. I did a, for my bachelor's, I did a master's degree in organizational design, organizational studies. And and was really fascinated by business, and so had assumed I would go down a very different career path. But I uh, will often say I just happened to have the sheer dumb luck of graduating from a college that was in the heart of Silicon Valley in the mid-90s. And um, by virtue of that dumb luck, the number of companies coming to recruit on campus that had something to do with technology was, was disproportionate to the state and size of the technology industry at that time, which was still young. And software in particular was a relatively young uh, industry to, uh, to be sure. And so um, there was a, a great software company named Trilogy that had uh, come on campus and had a very compelling and charismatic CEO who was a deep believer in hiring great people and great talent. And even if that talent was young, giving them uh, lots of responsibility. And it was very, it was a risky venture. You know, the, at the time, I think the company had about 50 employees and was probably in hindsight, less than 10 million in revenue, I, I imagine back in 1994. But I fell in love with um, the company and the people that were there and decided to take, take a risk and go and go and join that, that software startup. That software startup went on over the next seven years to go from a sub $10 million startup to a multi-hundred million dollar company uh, employing thousands of people. And it was just a rocket ship ride. And I was really fortunate to have um, a, a lot of support in the, within the leadership of the company um, because I was there early and was willing to do whatever was asked <laughs> to, to try to help the company be successful. Um, so I was then able to, to work in a lot of different areas, a lot of different functions. As the company scaled, there was always a need for 
well, there's a big problem or opportunity over there. Can somebody step up and go help us with that? And um, uh, I got I got tapped on the shoulder a few times in those situations that that all proved to be great learning experiences for me and and uh, helped me. I wish I could say it was by design. I would say, you know, in hindsight, it turned out to be just lucky that uh, all of those assignments helped me span, you know, basically all the all the functions within a software company, uh, short of coding. You know, I got to really learn the business end to end which teed me up to be able um, in, my, in my next venture, go ask for and, and have the opportunity to serve as the CEO of my first startup uh, back in 2000, what was that, 2007. But I, but I spent a, a lot of years just learning, you know, from 95 to 2007, it was really, really just a period of learning uh, different parts of the business. Hey everybody, we're taking a time out to thank Trinet for sponsoring independent media like Mission Daily. If there's one thing I am about, and in fact, one thing the whole mission team is about, you know it's accelerated learning. One way I do that is by learning from the best. When it comes to learning about HR, the team and resources Trinet provides are my go-to source. Just this week, Trinet published a blog and webinar series to help small and medium-sized businesses manage the impact of COVID-19. It covers actions you can take to be prepared should one of your employees test positive for coronavirus. It also covers other factors you should consider, including employee compensation, if your business is required to shut down due to the pandemic. There's lots happening now in real time. Go to Trinet.com and get the information you need to protect your business. Trinet will continue to post the latest as recommendations as legislation is changing on a daily basis. So you joined SunGrid at 2014, right? That's right. Yep. And so you, you joined and can you kind of paint a picture for us? Uh, you did a little bit before, but you know, where was the company at when you joined and what was your process like for joining? Because, you know, often it's tempting when you join a new venture and do have so much experience, you know, to point out all the changes or <laughs> the things you think you <laughs> need to be changed. Um, yeah. I'm curious, what was your integration process like, uh, back in 2014? Yeah. Uh, joining SendGrid was, um, by far, uh, the best career decision I've ever made. Uh, I've never had more fun in, in any job I've ever held. I can say without question, uh, it was also probably the hardest career decision I ever made. So in the summer of 2014, I, I ended up joining in October. But in the summer of 14, uh, you know, I had kind of made my checklist of things that I really cared about and finding in the next company. And Sengrid kind of checked all the boxes. The problem was that it was for me, the problem was that I live here in Menlo Park, as we mentioned earlier, in the Bay Area. And um, SendGrid was founded out of Boulder, uh, Colorado, had expanded to Denver in Colorado, and had uh, the founders of the company had gone and opened an engineering office in Southern California uh, in Orange County. And uh, you'll note that none of the three that I just mentioned are in the Bay Area. <laughs> so <laughs> while I loved everything about this, uh, this company, I was living here in the Bay Area and, and commuting to a different, uh, a different state or a different part of the state seemed kind of crazy, uh, particularly at a time when my wife and I then had two young, relatively young kids. Gosh, they were probably like eight and five at the time, I would imagine. And uh, uh, it seemed particularly stupid. And my wife, who runs intellectual circles around me, uh, was also had a very big job herself uh, at the time, was uh, 
running business operations over at LinkedIn and had a team that was probably uh, bigger than all of SendGrid. And she was the breadwinner in our family back in those days. I think LinkedIn, she had joined LinkedIn right before the IPO, and uh, which was a wonderful thing. And we were not in, in any position to be moving anywhere because her job was the anchor of what we were doing. So uh, it was a tough decision to make. I ended up turning the job down twice uh, before I finally accepted it. Part of the reason um, that I had fallen in love with the company so much was I often say I fell in love with SendGrid with, with head and heart. Analytically, as a, as a business geek, the, uh, the SendGrid business model to me was astounding. Um, I had been in enterprise software for a decade uh, or uh, probably 15 years at that point. And um, the history of enterprise software would always involved, you know, writing some complex code to solve a given problem and then hiring an army of um, uh, salespeople to go out and knock on doors. And when I came and looked at the SendGrid business, at the time, SendGrid in 2014 was doing about 30 million in revenue. And I asked about what our sales team looked like at the time. And they pointed out the interviewing room window and said, well, that, that's them over there. And they pointed at a table that had five or six people sitting around it, um, a card table. <laughs> I said, that, that's the entire sales force. And I said, yeah, it's all, it's all inside sales. They're uh, responding to people that click on the contact sales button on our website. But 99% of our customers never talk to a SendGrid employee before they just try our product for free on our website, embed the API into their code, put a credit card down, and they're off and running. And to me, that self-service, almost e-commerce-like selling of software was magical. So I, I was in love with that. And I had fallen in love with the company's culture, which at the time when SendGrid was standalone, we called them the four H's, happy, hungry, humble, and honest. And, um, and each of those resonated with me for, for in different ways for a particular reason. And, and I just loved them, uh, particularly the humble age, which I thought was, I'd been humbled by life. I thought, I thought that uh, humility was, was a terrific characteristic and probably one that was not all that common in, in software or in tech during that period of time or now. And, uh, and I, that resonated deeply with me. And so I had really fallen in love with this company. And so I kept saying no because of the aforementioned it's I live in the wrong place and I've got a young family and these, these things don't make sense. Um, but I kept thinking about the company cause I had really fallen in love with it. And I often retell the story of how my, uh, it was only because my wife one day who I mentioned earlier is much smarter than I am said to me, you know, honey, you, you seem to be struggling with this question. Tell me when you want me to tell you the answer <laughs> in the most condescending <laughs> way that only, only a loving spouse can. Uh, and I said, yeah, honey, go ahead, please. Um, um, tell me, so what am I missing here? And, uh, and she said, look, I've known you for 20 years and you have never fallen in love with a company like this. And so you're going to take this job and we're going to make it work. I don't know how, but we'll figure it out together. It was only that extraordinary gesture of love from, from my wife that is the reason that I was able to take, take the job um, because she gave me permission to do so. And, and, uh, and again, I just, you know, for all the listeners out there that are, are founding companies or going on entrepreneurial journeys, I just uh, encourage you all to, to remember to thank all those around you who are sacrificing on, on your behalf to allow you the opportunity to go follow this dream of yours. And, uh, and my wife in this case was, was the one who did that for me. And, and so we, I ended up taking the job. We, we ended up agreeing that we would be, we'd build out an office here in, in Silicon Valley, which we did, which at least allowed me to have um, some nights at home and, uh, 
we worked out a schedule and a cadence that worked worked for everybody. And my my assistant helped me track uh, how many how many uh, days and nights I was making it for bedtime and how many dinners I was having with the family and uh, was pretty maniacal about that. But um, it was it was a challenge to be sure. But we did that for for it's been five and a half years now, uh, and it's it's been quite a journey. That is uh, exciting and inspiring to say the least. So. I have uh, one son who's two and uh, two other sons that are were recently born. They actually turned a month old today. Oh, congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So we launched our first podcast in March of 2018. And so two years later, I have uh, three children and I think we have like 11 <laughs> uh, podcasts now. So perfect, perfect timing. And, <laughs> That's awesome. and um, thanks. And one of the challenging things for me is... You know, obviously the early years of children's lives are so important. I mean, the latter years are as well, but the early developmental years, it's so yeah. important to to be around and provide structure and support. So yeah. uh, I'd really selfishly <laughs> like to get any advice <laughs> or tips you have for the, the early days and how you thought about work-life integration between you and your spouse in those early days. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I wish I had a magical answer. Um, it is, there's no two ways about it. It's just hard, particularly as you, as, uh, if you have, uh, two working parents as we did, uh, you know, you, you have to, to make sure you've got a wonderful family or support, um, uh, around you to help during those working hours. And, you know, the, the cliche of, um, just being present when you are home is so easy to say and so hard in practice to do. The number of times that I know at least I found myself, uh, you know, on the play mat, on the floor uh, with one of, my, one of my toddlers, but my brain would still be cycling on some problem at work or some opportunity we weren't capitalizing on, et cetera. And I would just right. have to constantly, mindfully try to bring my brain back to the moment that I was in with my child. Uh, as I say, it's just, it's truly, it's easier. It's harder than it sounds. It sounds like it should be so easy, but, but when you feel the responsibility of, of an entire company that, that never turns, it's hard to turn that off. So uh, just really being present is is super important. I do love the, you know, the little tips and tricks of, you know, you come home and you, you stand outside your, your door before you walk, before you cross the threshold for about 30 seconds and take a deep breath and try to shake it all off and then walk in. Or when you get in, uh, you take your cell phone and you put it in the drawer and you say, I'm not going to take this thing out until after dinner uh, when the kids are uh, already put to bed. And you treasure that time when you can read them those stories in bed or help them with the bedtime routine. And uh, they won't remember any one instance of those nights, but they'll remember that you were present and there. The normalcy and stability that that creates um, for them is is what I think persists. I love that. Yeah, and the any type of predictability and uh, quality over quantity is so important. And yeah, it's uh, the small things add up. And just standing outside, that's a great reminder. I'll uh, be sure to practice that today. Yeah, Samir, when when you are thinking about the future now for yourself, your family, for SendGrid, what is on your radar? Because a lot of people are in a panicked place right now. However. When I talk to other CEOs or executives or more seasoned people, they kind of echoed the similar sentiment that you did, which is this is 
a, a crisis, but there's also a tremendous opportunity here. So what type of opportunities do you see and um, what type of future are you envisioning for yourself and the company? Yeah, I, there's um, uh, there's no question that uh, there's a lot of concern and, and uh, anxiety and, and fear right now as to what's happening in, in the world and, and how that uh, will come home and, per, and personally touches and impacts uh, people listening and the people they love and the communities they, they live in. And as leaders, it's incumbent on us to try to do everything we can to provide stability, to provide um, a sense of confidence that this too shall pass and uh, it won't be easy and it won't likely be short, I'm afraid. Um, but this too shall pass and, and it is a uh, one step in front of the other, uh, one day to the next activity to, to kind of collectively find the strength to, to move through this. Um, you know, I think in terms of how SendGrid views the opportunity and, and, and Twilio, we're fortunate, as I said earlier, that um, you know what we provide is a communications platform. And in the midst of a global pandemic, uh, I think people appreciate how critical that it is to be able to communicate and communicate at scale effortlessly through services like ours. And, and so that has been a tremendous, I think, a, a buoy for many of our teammates who, who know, uh, feel a sense of pride in what we do, know that it matters. You know, we are powering so many healthcare systems around the world, emergency uh, care, um, response teams, we're powering telemedicine, we're, you know, organizations that are relying on us to go do good in the world and, and help us. Uh, collectively through the crisis, so so that certainly helps. And anything you can do to to help your teammates um, see how what they are doing is is connected to fighting uh, the this this battle that we're in, I think is uh, is quite helpful. But you know, and and as a business, as we look forward, we just think that uh, it it increases our our resolve and conviction that building this in, engagement platform. Uh, is what the world needs. And, and to date, most of the companies we have worked with have used these channels of communications in isolation, in silos, whether they're using uh, SendGrid for email, uh, Twilio's SMS uh, for, for text or messaging, or as for voice, they might be using WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger. There are so many different ways in which a company gets their message in front of a, a consumer or a user, but there really has been very little that orchestrates across them. And I think there is a tremendous opportunity for us to continue to help uh, organizations do that. And I think that's that's sort of at the center of, of uh, the vision of Twilio is, is to build that customer engagement platform. And so I'm very excited uh, to, to help the team uh, along that journey. Yeah, it's an exciting time for sure. And uh, again, communications is going to be so paramount as we expand uh, and move into the future here. So with the, the future at uh, Twilio, I'm curious to know, how did you think about incorporating and kind of melting or alchemizing or however you want to say it, the company cultures, right? Because you referred to yourself as the chief cultural officer of SendGrid. And then, you know, with the acquisition, Twilio obviously has a different culture. So how did you integrate those uh, four H's and how did you blend the cultures? Yeah, it was, it was quite an intentional journey. Um, you know, so gosh, you know, so I mentioned that, you know, after I joined in, in October of 14, we had 
a number of challenges at the time that we had to wrestle through, but we were able to, to place a whole series of bets. Some of them paid off, some of them didn't. Enough of them did that allowed us to reaccelerate our growth rates. And we went from 30 million through 100 million. We uh, took the company public in 2017. That was after um, Twilio had made its first offer to acquire the company. All of this is in the public filing, so I'm not saying anything that isn't already out there. And uh, at the time, we were very uh, keen to continue to build uh, as a standalone company. We loved, we loved our company. We loved our culture. We were uh, very happy to keep, keep on keeping on. And by, by the summer of 2018, uh, a year into being public, Twilio came back and, and uh, we revisited the conversation again. It was just clear uh, to me that, and, and to, to Jeff uh, Lawson, our founder CEO at Twilio, that you know we could do so much more together than we could uh, apart, and the, the the synergy between the two businesses was was so complementary. Our visions were so aligned, and candidly, we were either going to end up battling each other or coming together as one. Um, and so we ended up making the decision um, to come together, and and uh, in so doing, uh, Jeff and I had a lot of conversations about culture, and I. I have so much respect for Jeff um, and admiration for so many different reasons. But one of the um, maybe chief among them is, is how, uh, how much he also cares about culture and the people on his teams. Uh, so he asked me a lot of questions about our culture, uh, not just where we were similar, but where we were different. And we spent a lot of time uh, talking about those differences and how we thought we would navigate those if and when we were one, one company. And, and I do believe deeply that when an acquisition occurs, you really do have to become one company. We, had a tag, we have a tagline across the organization that is uh, we have to forge one team. There's, there's no way for uh, everyone is now a Twilion. You, know, you have to retire the four H's. We had to retire the, our self-nomenclature of uh, gridders, is, is the, what we call SendGrid employees. They're no longer gridders. We're all Twilions now. And some of those things were hard, but we did them on day one from the time we, we made the acquisition or we closed the acquisition, uh, made it very clear to folks that we needed to bring these teams together. And, and so I'm, I'm so grateful to, to Jeff and, and his leadership team. They're very thoughtful. It worked out that Twilio was also in the, in the midst of recrafting its um, core value set. And they had a list of seven core values and nine leadership principles or something like that. And, and they realized that well, that's too many for people to remember. And so we need, they were going to abridge and, and shorten and consolidate some of theirs. And they were going through that exercise right around the same time as the acquisition. And so uh, in effect, we were able to then go and uh, that the team that was working on that went and, and uh, interviewed many dozens of, of what we now call the legacy Sengrid employees um, uh, Twilions who were working at SendGrid and said, you know, how do you think about culture and, and tell us more about the 4 H's, et cetera, and then incorporated those. Uh, and so it was uh, the 4 H's got embedded into the new values and in the same way as uh, the, the previous nine and seven got, got, uh, got rolled in. So uh, it worked out really well that we were able to adopt a whole new set of values together collectively as one company that was neither legacy SendGrid nor legacy Twilio. Yeah, that's a really, really cool story. I like, like how you went about that integration there. And if I, from my studying and reading your story a little bit, uh, discovered that, so when you first 
joined SendGrid, you very proactively sought fundraising. And it seems like, you know, you also proactively sought out the counsel of Jeff and, you know, very thoughtfully pursued that acquisition. So is it safe to say that, you know, you're you're always thinking four years, five years, or maybe more, more years ahead? And if so, how do you go about that balance of living in the present, but also planning and thinking for the future? Yeah, well, I, I guess I would say, you know, you're, uh, every CEO's job, entrepreneur, founder, is, is to imagine uh, the world as you anticipate it years out into the future. You really, you know, the, the things that we do take years to manifest themselves. And so you have to, you really have to think about what, what you think the market landscape might look like years out. In, in my particular case, I would say much of, you know, for the example you mentioned of, you know, uh, getting together with Jeff or, you know, that uh, years, years and before we ever talked about uh, anything related M&A was, was in fact, actually just genuine um, humility to, to learn because I was a new CEO in this new email uh, API developer economy category where Jeff had, had founded Twilio and had built it from the ground up and had a company that was, that was probably a year or two ahead of, of SendGrid in its scale. Um, and so it's a genuine desire to go and learn. And, and I would encourage um, all the founder CEOs out there listening to, you know, always be making time to go and learn from, from others around you that are similar in uh, either the pursuit or the segment or analogous, because you can always learn a ton. And, and so we did that. But yeah, I think, you know, it is, it is incumbent on, on every leader to think about if the world uh, evolved in this way, if the market landscape moved in this way, what would we need to do? And, and there is no question in my mind uh, early on that SendGrid was either going to end up uh, adding our own SMS and push and uh, in-app capabilities for other communication channels. We would we'd either be building our own, partnering with somebody else like Twilio, uh, or combining forces with. But it, it was very clear to me very early that we wanted to have a multi-channel communications platform. That that um, having one channel in isolation was not what the market ultimately would need, and so you just start to uh, start to work accordingly. And Samir, now with expanding and having more resources of a larger company, your vantage point is very very different, and the view that you have of the tech landscape and what's possible is uh, transformed at this point. So if you are providing advice or if you know, you're talking to young CEOs or young founders these days who you know, are in this current situation, what type of advice do you have for them? And is there a, uh, uh, maybe one piece of advice you find yourself giving again and again? Gosh, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll provide maybe one that's specific to the time we're in and one that's just uh, generic and generically true at any time. Um, for the time we're in, having my, my first startup that I did from 2007 to 2010, I, I lived through the Great Recession uh, as a CEO. And uh, I will often repeat for, for founders, entrepreneurs that are, that are at the brink of this pandemic, uh, don't get burned by your cash burn. Uh, that at this stage, making difficult decisions around how you are going to mitigate that cash burn um, as you're building your business, I think is just really important. There's just, uh, I think, little question that we will be entering a period of, uh, of significant uh, economic contraction. And um, 
being conservative and taking action now will will um, behoove your business uh, down the road. And uh, and of course, every business and situation is different. But if you're a, a young company, a young startup, you're going to need to be able to weather a storm that could be uh, a short storm measured in months. It could be uh, a longer storm measured in quarters. And and you just need to look at your balance sheet and figure out um, what that looks like and and make the harder decision sooner than later. You know, I think my my more generic advice, um, which is true independent of, of, of time frame, I would say is uh, a simple statement of um, being authentic and being vulnerable. And uh, the authentic side is uh, there are so many different people out there that will espouse different styles of leadership, different ways to to manage. And and I'm one of them, by the way. I have a particular style that I that I love called servant leadership. And I could talk to you for a long time about that, but it's not for everyone. And and so um, I would and just encourage every leader that's out there. People uh, resonate with folks that they believe are really them. They're just authentically who they are, and uh, there'll be a self selection mechanism to be sure. Uh, and like will will seek like in their in their leaders and in the cultures that those leaders then create. Um, but I think be, just being you is really important. And I I share that because you know when I was coming up, the leaders that the first leaders that I had grown up under were were probably were, are very different stylistically than I am, but extraordinarily capable. But we're more of a you know tops down tops down. I have the answer type leader. I'm not at all that way. I'm, I'm definitely more of the let me, wisdom, wisdom of the crowd. Let me get the group together and, and collaborate and collectively we'll come up with a better answer than any one of us will. That uh, is it, just a very different style. And um, I think I assumed for years that the only way to be a great leader was to be one way. And it wasn't until you know somebody gave me permission in, in some sense um, by example was to just be yourself. And, uh, and I think you'll be a far more compelling leader if you're just being yourself. Don't try to be or pretend to be anyone other than that. That is, uh, as my uh, mentor at, uh, at Citrix, uh, extraordinary uh, former CEO there, Mark Templeton, once said, uh, said to me, he said, yeah, Samiri, you know, the, the most powerful thing in the world you can be. And I waited with bated breath and he said, yourself. <laughs> and that simple truth is, uh, is, is true today as it was then. Uh, the vulnerable side, um, I think, relates to the authentic, which is, <clears throat> again, in my career, I have found that when people see you as a human, as a full human, that they can identify with, that is not some, you know, the, in the old, you know, 50 years ago, you'd assume that you needed to the leader had to pretend to be perfect, that had to pretend to be all-knowing and omniscient. And my experience is that people can't identify with that because we are all flawed. We are all human. And uh, when they can't identify with it, their ability to follow, you know, you're more of a figure uh, or, or a, uh, an idea, a concept. When they see you for your, who you really are and recognize that uh, you have your own flaws, you have your own insecurities, you have your own challenges they're just more willing to follow you in the battle and uh, because they believe in you and they know, they know you're, you're, you're like them and um, not just the guy on the screen or the guy on the stage, hopefully the gal on the stage. Right. Um, 
I, I would say authentic and vulnerable would be would be my generic pieces of advice. I love that. Samir, this has been so awesome. Thank you for being vulnerable and thank you for being yourself. This is a great interview and thanks so much for being generous with your time and uh, best of luck out there in Menlo as we continue to weather the storm. Thank you so much, Chad. I appreciate it. Thanks to the listenership for listening in and uh, everyone be, be safe, be well and uh, stay healthy. All right. Take care, everyone. See you next time. By now, you know that Trinet is our sponsor for Mission Daily. You know they have amazing full-service HR solutions for your business. So what are you waiting for? When you go to trinet.com to get more information, you help support independent media like Mission Daily, and you help support our team here. And you, as a business owner or HR exec, can get top-notch service from the team at Trinet. Stop worrying about HR issues and team up with the best, Trinet. You don't have to go at it alone. Reduce your worry. You need a team and Trinet is your go-to team for HR. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.